Amen. Thank you, Hector. Well, if you've got your Bibles, if you grab them, please, and turn to Romans chapter 1. We're going to finish up chapter 1. If you're with us for the first time, we're going to finish up chapter 1. Um, the next couple of uh, weeks, this week and next week especially, a little difficult as we talk about the wrath of God and next week, judgment of God. And, um, but I'm excited about what God has for us today. Growing up, you may, this may shock you, but I was kind of in, got in trouble a lot with my parents. Um, and I'm sure y'all didn't, but I did. And I often crossed the line and pushed boundaries and did what I wasn't supposed to do. And then as sweet as my mom and, and dad are, and well, still are, um, there was those moments where I had to face the wrath of my parents, right? When you had to suffer the consequences for crossing the line. And, and, and I remember that whenever you see the side of mom and dad, you're like, oh, but they do those with boundaries and things like that. There's moments where parents have to step in and, and make sure that we keep that authority those boundaries. And infinitely greater than wrath of mom and dad is the wrath of God towards sin. And that's the subject today. But if I'm honest, a lot of times, People in my shoes and on stages and pastors and churches, we, we want to minimize this because it's not a popular thing. It's not something often we want to talk about. Uh, actually, we'll leave it out of sermons. We'll minimize it. And Paul doesn't do that. And, and anytime we preach through books of the Bible like we, I like to do, we can't skip the hard parts. Um, we can't minimize the wrath of God. And the point of this is that in order to truly, truly appreciate the good news Often we have to see the bad news. That's what Paul is going to unpack first last week, and it'll all on the screen for you before we do our text. When Paul, to this point, says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who might believe. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed, and a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And that's good news. This week and next week, it's difficult, but he's setting up Romans 3, 4, 5. As we get going, the good news of Jesus that has come. But this letter to the church in Rome, Paul wants to address this wrath of God towards sin so that we can truly understand the good news. So I'm going to ask you to stand. If you have your Bibles, you can read along. The lengthy text. I'd call it a very mature text. There's some words and things in here that are covered that uh, I'll just be honest with you. Maybe if little kids, there may be some questions as, as we get going, but um, we're going to cover it well today. So chapter 1, verse 18, we're going to go all the way to 32. Let's read, and we'll pray. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by wickedness. Since what is known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to their sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies for one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relationships with, with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received themselves the due penalty for their perversion. 
Furthermore, since they did not think it was worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they not only, excuse me, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Let's pray. There's a lot there. Let's pray together. If you would, with your head bowed and your eyes closed, uh, we do it on purpose every week just for you to have a little space that's just yours to, to pray, to listen, to, to ask God to give you focus of heart and mind, to push things to the margin, whatever is going on in your world. Uh, and if your heart's desire is to, to receive what he has for us, just ask him. Uh, and he'll do it. If you don't mind, say a prayer for me that I would speak truth today. That collectively, all of us, if our hearts desire to do so, that we would be. Father, we've heard today. You've heard your people. You know our hearts. You know what's on our minds. And for this time and space we have, help us to focus on you. May your grace and your mercy be at the forefront of all that we see today in a a very complicated text. But it's in a good text. So thank you for it. Thank you for your word. Help us to proclaim it boldly. Help us to, to, to look to you in all things. And we ask it in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, um, obviously, as I read that, it, there's a lot there. Um, I read a story this week of, uh, of, of, a, of a theologian named Sinclair Ferguson, a Scottish theologian, told a story in a book that he wrote uh, about in the United Kingdom at a university, there was some, a, a campus ministry who had an idea. I don't recommend this. I don't think it's a good idea. Uh, but they decided this passage, 18 through 32, what they were going to do, what they decided was take out the verses, take out the numbers and all that kind of stuff, and they wrote it in a modern translation modern language and printed the, what I just read to you and they passed it on the campus. How do you think that went? As the story goes, they were called, university authorities called them in and they wanted to know where they got this offensive language, this offensive letter, this offensive stuff. Who, was it, who did this? They wanted demand of, of who the author was and I, I share that only because of this because there's a lot here today. The wrath of God is easily dismissed um, in churches and in ministries and sermons and things like that. It's not all rainbows and unicorns. If there's anybody in this room today that understands, it's parents who, like I said a while ago, it's not all rainbows and unicorns. We can't be best buddies and things like that. There's times when the lines cross where we step in and there, there, is a, there is a wrath, there is an authority that we have to step in. So I want to answer some questions today first, but what is the wrath of God? What is this all about? The wrath of God, in, in the Greek, there's a word called orge, which basically means passion, rage, fury, not, not simply annoyed, but it is a righteous anger. That's what it is. It's a righteous, holy anger that God has towards sin. We see, and Scripture tells us that God, in His character, Exodus 34, Psalm 86, tells us that God is slow to anger, He is abounding in love, But make no mistake, God is a righteous God. He does get angry. He has wrath towards sin. It is a 
anger, but it is measured and it is with restraint. So I think sometimes it's hard because we, we have our version of wrath and anger, but that's with sin, you know, and things like that. But Scripture tells us it's different with the Father. A.W. Pink puts it this way, I'm going to read it. He, he describes the wrath of God is his eternal detestation of all unrighteousness. It is the displeasure and the indignation of, of divine justice against evil. It is the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. It is the moving cause of that just sentence which he passes upon evildoers. God is angry against sin because it is rebelling against his authority. A wrong done to his inviolable sovereignty. Now we could go, you could do a whole, we're not, you could do a whole series for a month just on the wrath of God and we could cover eternal wrath which is punishment, eternal damnation, eternal things at the end where we have eternal wrath for the sins of our, of our life without Jesus. There's eschatological, which is the ends of time. There's cataclysmic, talking about how, how natural things happen. You can look at the flood in the Bible about how God, and he's like, we're starting over. <laughs> but today, there's some rub here, because today is the wrath of abandonment. Now, this is going to, some of the things I'm going to say today are going to, you're going to, oh, I don't know how, how it settles on me. When God turns his back and says, if that's what you want, that's, you got it. And just in case if there's ever a part of us that thinks, I can't compute that, why would God do that? Think of the cross where God had to turn his back on his son as Jesus took the wrath of your and my sin. And God in his holy justness and rightness cannot be in the presence of that. And that's why Jesus Christ on the cross is, why have you forsaken me? Because God had to turn from that. So we'll see this up front and center. We're going to see this part where God's going to hand him over, going to let him go. But we must remember, please, we must remember that Romans, the theme of it is the righteousness of God, the good news of the gospel. But in order to firmly understand the good news, Paul, in this first century church, and for us in the 21st century, we have to understand this depravity of what life is without God. And when that happens, you realize how much you need a Savior. So this picture that Paul's painting is a life without God, and the goal is to see the mercy and grace in need for Jesus. Look at verse 18. Let's start. we got a lot to cover. The first thing he says in his letter, he says, uh, you know, God's righteousness is revealed. Look at verse 18. So is his wrath. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness among the people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Right now, in this text, this is a, not a future, or excuse me, a, a later, like at the end. This is a right now wrath. It is happening right now. It is being revealed. Not a future wrath for sin. Against two things, godlessness and wickedness. Paul's not talking about a multitude of sins here. He's being very specific. It's a universal sin. It's committed by every one of us. And what he calls it is pressing the truth of God. In the original language, it means to break it down, to stifle, to obscure truth, to twist, to turn, to hold it back. And Paul says, anything that does not submit under heaven, it's not in Christ. It's under the wrath and the weight of God. Now quickly, this is why Christ comes. This is why Isaiah 50 tells us Jesus, the one to come, is pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace, and peace is not just like happiness. Peace is the absence in, in, of, of God's wrath and, and wholeness. The punishment that, that took away the wrath of sin was him, and by his wounds we were healed. Praise God for that. We all, like sheep, have gone astray and turned to his own way. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of all of us. So there's hope. 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him, Jesus, 
Christ who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. We got a lot to cover, but I don't want you to miss it in the darkness of the, the bad news here. There is grace and there is hope in King Jesus, and that's why he comes. And anybody in this room that if you've given your life to Jesus, you understand, I hope and pray that we know that. But something that came up in my studies this week was that sin problems always lead to worship problems. Because the text goes that what we worship, idolatry, that's, that's what Paul's going to go here. Placing things above God. Paul says there, there, there's a movement towards idolatry. When you worship outside of Jesus, if you put your affections on something else and something other than that, it's going to create a problem. So God's wrath, stay with me on this, is being revealed. And this is why, when Paul explains in 19 through 22, since what may be known about God's plain to them, creation. He said, look around, because what God has made is plain to them. Since the creation of God's invisible qualities, two things, his eternal power and his divine nature, they have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Quickly, what he's saying there. Simply by looking at creation, simply attaching what God has made to the creator, there is no excuse to not say, there's something bigger going on. There's a, there's a creator. There's, there's something bigger out there. So that's a pretty loaded statement, but they're suppressing his eternal power and his divine nature. Look at 21. He says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him nor gave thanks to, them, to him. Excuse me. And their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although, this is scary, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And here it is, kids in the children's sermon. They traded, they exchanged the glory of the mortal God for images, idols that look like mortal beings, birds, animals, reptiles. They traded the creator, the giver for creation and the gift and said, I would rather have the stuff than you. Is that a 21st century issue? Is that just a first century issue? It's the very same thing today, right? And so what he's painting the picture is, is this is a picture of those who say, I don't need God, don't need Jesus. I just want the stuff. I just want things and the reason I said it's a worship problem is because when we set our desires and our affections, we all worship something. We all do, every one of us. We all set our affections and desires on something, and if it's on something that we don't need Jesus, then there is still wrath for sin that has consequences. You see, that in 21, they, they knew God. It wasn't a, a saving sense. It was an existence sense. It wasn't that they knew God through Jesus Christ for salvation, they didn't want to know. They didn't want to honor, and they didn't want to give thanks. There was nothing in them that wanted to be redeemed or rescued. And they refused it. But that, in that, it's, it's hard because that's how idolatry and darkness works. If you don't worship God, we're going to worship something. We're going to manufacture something, and Satan's really good at crafting things where it's not just always bad things. Sometimes it's good things that we elevate to God things. Confession, every time I even preach anything about idolatry, I remember when I preached my first sermon in Denver, and not this text, but it was in Romans, and that guy was just born, and I remember thinking my biggest idol was going to be this little boy. I struggled, and I was like, I was like man, I, that was the first time I felt these things, and I was like, God, help, let me not elevate things that are so good in front of you. That's hard. They claimed, look at 22, this is spiritual warfare that takes place. They claimed to be wise, but they were fools. 
And Satan loves to do that. Satan loves to maneuver to convince people they don't need a redeemer, they don't need to be saved, they don't need Jesus. Just, just, just have the stuff. But they thought they were right. They thought they were good. And because of 23, because of their unwillingness to worship God, their minds were futile and their hearts were darkened. Scripture talks about a heart of stone until it needs. Ezekiel the prophet says that I'm going to give you a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone that will, that will receive what God has. It is a scary place to be, and I just want you to see, it's kind of dark right now. This is the hope of the gospel. It's a scary place to be. When you're convinced you're right, you don't need help, they were fools, they traded God, they wanted the stuff, and they didn't need to be saved. They didn't need to be redeemed. And that's the devastation of sin. Since the garden entered where the devil loves to maneuver in this, God's holding out on you. Did he really say not to eat this? Did he really say to do this? It's devastation. Because Satan cannot destroy God, but he wants to destroy humanity, and he doesn't want anybody to come to saving grace through faith. So they traded him. And Paul traces this language back. Just stay with me. I know it's a lot, but Paul traces this language back from Psalm 106, and he refers to Exodus 32. Remember the account of Moses and Aaron and the people of Israel. They went up to Mount Sinai. They were delayed in coming down. The people got a little restless and anxious, and you know what they did? They gathered jewelry, and what did they do? They melted it down, and they created a golden calf. Why? Because they had to worship something. Sin problems create worship problems. You worship something. I am going to worship something. And so this theme from the creation for the Old Testament all the way to the New, it traces this idolatry that is devastating. Moses comes down. He's not pleased. Tablets are broken. God tells Moses, they are a stiff-necked people. He's going to wipe them out. Moses pleads with them. Praise, please. Don't, and God relents. I tell this because I want you to see this because it's woven through. Not just this, but Paul's trying to help these guys, these Gentile and these Jewish believers, to understand what the wrath of God is. It's a bad trade. Just like my brother used to rip me off with those two quarters and that dollar. I did not understand the value of what it was. And that's what Satan wants to do, church. Listen to this. If you don't know Christ, he wants to convince you that you don't need it. You're good without it. You don't need that. Hold those two shiny coins. You don't need that dollar. But even as us as Christians, we still sin, right? Here's the little rub. We still, every time I sin, every time you sin, we trade God. We decide in that moment, I want this. And there's repentance and forgiveness and grace. But for the unbeliever, for those who don't need to be saved, they don't want Jesus, there is wrath. And it can lead to life that can be difficult and strenuous. You've heard this statement. I think I've said this a lot of times here. Finish the sentence. Where there's smoke, there's what? Fire. St. Augustine, a man who said earlier when I started this series, said that Romans changed his life forever, said this. Things like worry, fear, sadness, depression, I don't think it's an exhaustive list, I think it's just a couple things he put in this quote, are, quote, smoke from fires raising from the altars of our idolatry. What he's saying is this, like, all the things, fears, that's just a couple of things, but all the things, the anxiety, the fear, the depression, the worry, the doubts, the, whatever it could be, it can keep going. It's because we've set our affections on something else, and it's not giving us what we need, Right? It's not working out, so it creates anxiety. Where according to Paul, it creates futile minds, dark hearts, 
apathy, indifference, fear, depression, abuse. Manipulating things that God has made and twisting them for personal ones. Idols, not just bad things. Good things that we try to elevate if we're careful. There lies the urgency of today. I want to echo the words in Hebrews where the author of Hebrews says this. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as you did in your rebellion. So, so in this text, what did God do? In this text, what did God do? Surely God's going to come running, right? Surely God, in his grace and mercy, is going to come to unbelievers and beg them and plead with them and do anything he can to draw, say, please come back, please come. What's he going to do? Well, this may be complicated to understand, but it's not what he does. 24. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity of the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served created things rather than their creator, who is forever praised. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. And we see in a couple of verses here where sexual uh, perversion happens. Let's skip to 28 again. Furthermore, just as they did not think it was worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, here it comes a third time. God gave to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. Three times in 20, 26 and 28, Paul says, God, let me pray. he let him go. And there's a reason why in a room like this, that's unsettling. Because nobody wants to process a God that's going to say, if that's what you want, I can't make you. I'm not going to force you. If that's what you want, I hope it's worth it. Why would God do that? Why would God allow you and me outside of Jesus Christ? If somebody who doesn't know, why would he let them go? Shouldn't he force them? Like, make them? Right? This idolatry, as R.C. Sproul says, the most fundamental sin in our fallen, corrupt nature is the sin of idolatry. It is the sin of refusing to honor God for who he is. We want to strip him of his attributes, turn him into a God that is in our image, and a God we can live with, and a God we can be comfortable with. In conversations that I have about this text with people, the best thing I can do to describe it is this, is if somebody was to say, why do you love your wife? And I said, well, I have to. I married her. <laughs> She's not here. I'm not saying it's because she's not here. We have sick kids. It's okay. I made a, I stood in front of a bunch of people at a wedding, you know, 21 years ago. I think 20, 21 years ago. And I, I, made a, I made a vow that I have to do that. How's that going to work out? <laughs> do you think she's going to want my forced, uh, like, love or affection or tell everybody, well, I have to do this. It's just kind of, a, I'm kind of stuck. Or a willful choice and decision to say, I love you because of this. You see, in, in this text, what the question that comes up is sometimes people want to say, why wouldn't God do something? Do something, God. Like, you don't want people to go to hell forever. The people that they don't, but, but they're choosing other things, do something. He did. And you know this, he did it with Jesus. Paul is showing this desperate need for sinners who need a Savior. He wants the church in Rome, as this letter is written, 
to a place that has multiple polytheistic gods and things, and here comes monotheistic God, the, God, the, the way, the truth, and the life. He wants them to understand, in order to know you need to be saved, you need to, you need to be able to say from what? A lot of people think salvation, what are you being saved from? I'm being saved from, from hell. That's not, that's not true. It's part of it. God's saving me from Satan. That's true, but not full. I'm saved from myself. That's true. The bottom line, if you want to talk about what Scripture says that you are saved from, the wrath of God towards sin. He did do something. He sent Jesus. We saw it right after the fall where we said, where he said, Hope's coming. He's coming. He's going to trample Satan. He's going to crush him like a, well, he was a snake. Crush him under his heel. Hope's coming. Redemption's coming. The prophets, Jesus, the Messiah is coming. Hope is going to come. But every time I read this and preach this and teach this or talk about this, Hebrews 10, 26 always comes up where I think about this. If we deliberately keep on sinning after the knowledge of truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. What that means and what the author of Hebrews in that context is talking about Jesus Christ sacrificed his death, his burial, his blood poured out as the final lamb. It is enough. It is sufficient. God did do something in Jesus. He's done everything. There's no sacrifice for sins is left. He is the final lamb. And if anybody here today in our world in the first or 21st century, refuses that, I don't need to be saved, then the wrath of God towards sin is still there. Paul, as in verse 29, as we finish up the text, he's trying to show the church the desperate need for Jesus. He's even going to give a laundry list of vices and struggles. It's not exhaustive, but it's a lot of things. So those in the first century, if you read these, and this is the practice of your life, then maybe you need to be saved or redeemed. He goes on in 29 and says, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, their gossip, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They come up with their own ways of doing evil as if there's not enough. They disobey their parents. There you go, kids, in case you thought you were out of it. There you go. They even disobey their parents. When you give God wants to have a no understanding of, of fidelity or love or mercy, and even though they know what God's righteous decree, that those who do those things deserve death, they not only stay in that, but they approve of those who do them. That is a dark text, and it's just showing us the devastation, both first or 21st century, of a desperate needing of salvation. On Wednesday nights, uh, my wife and I, we work with sixth graders, and we, we were t- we've been talking in Genesis lately, and we were talking about this, and even this last week, we were talking about the fall, and when sin, com- sin, excuse me, sin comes in the world, and talking about why God has to, 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 to deal with sin and why he can't just let it go and how sin always leads to death. It always leads to destruction. It always does. And asking some really good questions, it's kind of profound listening to them, but Paul said it. Sin's going to lead to death. That those who practice these things, these things, they deserve death, but they continue to practice it. We talked about Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. We deserve what we have earned for, is death. That is the wrath of God towards sin. But, thank goodness there's a comma and a but there, the gift of God, which is Jesus, 
leads to eternal life. And I love the conversation with, with sixth graders that you talk about. It. It's like, well, we deserve. We deserve to die. We deserve to be separated from God. We deserve the wrath of sin, but, then, but the gift of God is eternal life. And you say, well, how long is eternal life? And they're like, I guess that's forever. And then you get to point to Jesus because the bad news seems pretty grim. And I don't know about you, but here's the thing, is that there may be people in this room that know Jesus, but you still have times where you trade them. I have times where I trade it. If you, unless you don't sin, every one of us, when we sin, we trade. Now, in the believer who was born again, made alive, that is a different, where we can repent, God can change us and shape us. Just to be very clear, because sometimes people want to argue this, I can tell you this, that 1 John chapter 3 says, nobody born of the Spirit, born of God, practices sin. So if there's sin in our life that's just a practice every day, there's no conviction, there's no guilt, there's no change, then that shows there's bare fruits of somebody who doesn't know the Lord. But those of us who do, we can repent and confess and the blood of Jesus covers us and we are hidden, as Colossians tells us, our lives are hidden in Christ where the God of the universe, our time happens and we go stand before him, he sees the blood of the fallen lamb, his son. But to those in this room that can hear my voice that have not given their life to Christ Jesus, the wrath of God is still there. But this is why the entirety of the book is beautiful. You don't turn there because we're going to get there later. Romans chapter 8, he didn't spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. So to, why would God hand over to turn, to abandon those who willfully choose? They don't need to be redeemed. They don't want a Savior. They just want to live their life and do their thing. Because there's hope because he handed somebody else over, and that's his son. God handed over his son. He gave him up. He freely offered himself to bear the weight and the wrath and the penalty for sin. So there's the good news. I'm going to close with this, Romans chapter 5. You know, the hope of the gospel is the fact that we know that Christ comes. We have the privilege to know the whole story. And there may be some. I'm not naive enough to know that in a small room like this, in group, there's probably people who don't know Jesus. They've never given their life to Jesus. And, and, and you know, sometimes it gets a little, uh, us pastors get a little, a little grief sometimes for saying things like, hey, if, if this is it, if your time on earth is done today, where would you go? But the bottom line is, is that if the wrath of God is on and your life is over here, then there is another eternal wrath that will face that day. And I love you too much not to put that out there. So if there's anybody in this room today that has not given life to Jesus, to say, I believe in who you are, I believe in the gospel, I believe that you came from heaven to take on my sin, that the only one who can fix this sin problem from, from, from the fall in Genesis 3 that broke all of creation, the only one that could fix it is you, and you did it. And you came to this earth, and you came and you died my death. You lived a perfect, sinless life. God handed you over. Complete authority, complete, complete authority. No, even Jesus says, you have no authority, Pilate, except for what my Father gives. Everything is a divine plan to redeem souls because without it, there is no hope of salvation. There is no hope of eternal redemption. I pray that if that's you, you ask questions, I want you to leave with this. Romans chapter 5, the screen, look at verses 1 and 2. Therefore, we'll get there eventually. 
But I want you to see the whole story. Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ, to whom we have gained access by faith into his grace in which we now stand. And we're going to boast in the hope of the glory of God. Skip to verse 6, Romans chapter 5. You see, this is an amen moment for you, by the way. You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, and Christ died for the ungodly. And very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good one, somebody might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have been justified by his blood. Justified. We talked We've been justified, made righteous, righteous through faith and belief. We can't earn it. We can't do anything. We are made right by his blood. That's what he's saying. We're justified by his blood. How much more shall we be reconciled through him through his death in the Son? How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received a reconciliation where God restores, God brings right, God pays the penalty, and he restores the peace, the broken relationship that only he can do. And I'm going to tell you this, and I'm almost done. When I look into those sixth graders' faces, they see this, and they're asking questions, and they're saying, God's the only one that can fix it. Do you know him? Because you know what John 3, 36 says? That John the Baptist came, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever rejects it, not see life. Why? Because God's wrath remains on them. You see, in the history of the Baptist church, here's what happens. People get, we get a bad rap for, remember, you need a little fire and brimstone. You ever heard that? I, pull my, I don't want to pull my belt up. I do that every time I'm trying to talk like that. We don't have to articulate that or manufacture that. Scripture is very clear. I just want you to know, if you don't know Christ, that God's wrath is on you, but there's hope in Jesus Christ, and all you got to do is call on him. Say, I believe by faith that you have done it all. It is the finished work of the gospel. I can't make myself. I can't be smart enough. I can't be good. I can't go to church enough. If your life is marked by nothing but the world, then maybe you need to step in and say, God, I need, to, I need you to save me. But also know this. That even followers of Jesus struggle where we may trade God and pursue other things. Unless you stop sinning, which every one of us does, in those moments of sin, we feel justified and we trade God off. And maybe there's some things in your life, I know in my life, but there's things I need to confess because I, I chose this. I'd rather have this than you in this moment. But I'm going to ask you to bow where you're at. I don't know where you're at. I'm not going to ask you to do anything. I just want you to think about the grace and the mercy of Jesus. that I want us to understand the good news of the gospel as Paul kind of points out the, the bad news. Praise God that he in his love for you and I didn't wipe his hands and say, whatever. But he stepped in and he gave himself. Now, if you don't know that for salvation and you know right now that God's wrath towards sin is still on you because you've not placed your faith in him, and you're not justified by the blood of Christ. You have a lot of knowledge about him, but you do not know him. There is a fundamental difference. Then I plead with you to ask questions. Talk to mom, talk to dad, talk to your husband, talk to your wife, talk to your best friend, talk to somebody, say, I need to know this Jesus because I don't know him for salvation. So however this lands on you, I just want you to, to respond in obedience. 
I'm not going to ask anybody to look up here, raise your I'm not going to do any of that stuff. I just want you to know that there is good news. But Paul wants us to see the bad news outside of Jesus. Thank him, praise him. Confess whatever you need to do. But praise him that we are justified by his blood. Church, if you would, I'm going to pray. If you would stand, please. Uh, Father, I just want to first of all say thank you for hope of the gospel. I thank you for the word that spells it out pretty clearly. And for all of us in this room that we have given our life to you, and we want to say thank you for redeeming our souls and taking on the wrath that we deserve. And Father, if there is somebody here today or they hear my voice at some point along the line that doesn't know you for salvation, that just knows about you, I pray that, that you would draw them to yourself that they would see their need for a Savior and they would respond. For all of us in those moments, if we do know you, that we trade you and we think we, we choose other things, help us to be aware of that, to confess that, to repent from that. Help us. But above all, I just want to say thank you for your love. Though you didn't have to, you chose to. Pay the price we could not pay. We ask all this in your name. This is our invitation. We'll sing this together.